There's a dollop of Stephen King and a dash of X-Men to Zach Lepofsky and Adam Stein's sci-fi horror grabber. That's from Randy Myers at San Jose Mercury News talking about the film Freaks. The film we'll be talking about on this latest edition of Cinephile. As always, thank you so much for checking us out and uh, appreciate all the love we're getting right now everywhere. I mean, not only um, have I been asking all of you to subscribe and unsubscribe and resubscribe again and tell everybody all about the podcast, but of course, I appreciate the fact people are leaving ratings and reviews and the interest of getting more of those. There's a few that really stood out to us. Um, Adnan's passion and insight for film and TV is undeniable. Really enjoy the stories, interviews, actors, writers, directors. However, I'm not on board with the unconditional Scorsese love fest. That's okay. The Departed was not a good movie. There, I said it. Give up the great work. That's from Curtis64. Well, thank you very much, Curtis. Appreciate that. Top movie podcast. How about this one from Suspicious Bulge? Adnan's knowledge of movies is astounding. What's even more impressive is how he's not at all pretentious about it. He still seems like someone you could sit down, have a beer with, share a great laugh. I give this podcast five minute police. Oh, that is very kind of you. Thank you very much, Suspicious Bulge. And also here from Doc Lou, Iowa. So glad you are back. Love the GM Shuffle. Oh, yeah, that's my podcast with Michael Lombardi. Check that one out. Miss Stanzik reviews and comments. Never thought of Phantom Thread as a comedy. Well, it is a comedy. And, of course, that's a reference to uh, the fact that Ben Mankiewicz, who is fabulous, by the way. Thanks again to the TCM host. God, you could talk to that guy for hours. He's so smart, so funny. We were talking about P.T. Anderson. He said he wasn't as in on Phantom Thread at first, but he knew that me and Christy Lemire loved it. Went and saw it again. He goes, yeah, okay, I get it. This is really good. Uh, and last one here from Anthony. Worth the listen just for Adnan's energy. He's a great host, extremely knowledgeable. I always check out his reviews before seeing a new movie. Always look forward to the new episodes. Glad it came back and that it's a weekly podcast. My only critique is the Sopranos segment. I'm in my 20s, so I was too young to watch it when it came out. So the segment either forces me to tune out or pay attention and not get the references, have the episodes spoiled. I hear you, Anthony, but honestly, start watching, okay? That's, it's the greatest show of all time. So just get watching, and then you'll be good to go. Uh, we're going to talk about Pine Barrens, which might be the most famous Sopranos episode ever. That's coming up today on The Bada Binge, along with our special guest, my main man, Husman Havji, one of my best friends who is appearing in a play in Toronto. I just saw it last week. It's called Art. It's being presented by the Soul Pepper Theater in the Distillery District, so make sure you check it out. Joe, just before we get rolling with this week's movie, Freaks, seriously, how good is Mankiewicz? He's one of the best guests we've had so far in Cinephile. Oh, he was fantastic. So so funny, so knowledgeable, just all around good guy. He was really great. So hopefully people check that out once again. Ben is uh, honestly a very good tweeter as well. I mentioned the fact he's prolific and also very funny. Uh, the film we're talking about is Freaks, and it's a terrific horror film, Supernatural. Uh, it's reminded me in many ways of... Um, I think that, that review there from Rainy Jones, San Jose Mercury News makes sense. It does have elements of those other movies. But honestly, it's a beautifully shot, anxiety-ridden thriller. The film that I thought of immediately was Room, which won Brie Larson an Oscar just a couple of years ago. Uh, the story is this. Basically, uh, there's a girl who's being kept in her home by her father. She's seven years old, and you're not exactly sure why this is the reason for this, but he's telling her that there's danger outside and you can never leave and don't talk to anybody. So she lives in fear and fascination of the outside world, and he's telling her about abnormals, that they create a constant threat. 
So one day a stranger comes and, and offers her a glimpse of what's outside, and once she sees that, now she doesn't know what the truth is, and you get the whole theory of what's relative and what isn't. So it's from Adam Stein and Zach Lepofsky, who we're going to have on the podcast uh, in the coming weeks here on Cinephile. But it stars Emil Hirsch, who's a really good actor. Um, he's a guy who um, was fantastic at the Sean Penn film, Into the Wild, back in 2007. He's also been in The Girl Next Door, Lone Survivor, etc. He plays the father here, who's very protective, and I thought he did an excellent job of conveying both paranoia and fear for his daughter. He's this overprotective dad, and you wonder why exactly is he so scared because of what's outside in there. Um, and honestly, I just thought the film was really tight. It was well-constructed. Uh, there's a real cleverness to it. Um, you know, eventually you kind of figure out, okay, where is the story going? What exactly is outside? What is this hidden terror? And what is the special powers and the supernatural powers that are at work? I don't want to give any spoilers. I will only say Bruce Dern, who I would have liked to have seen much more utilized in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, plays one of the key characters here in the movie. He is the stranger who first shows his seven-year-old what exactly is outside and what the future could hold. But um, it's a very creepy film. It's very effective, and I think that... In many ways, it could be a real sleeper hit uh, this summer. So hopefully people will indeed check it out. It's always a little bit dicey here, Joe. You don't want to give away too much of the movie, uh, especially because, as I mentioned, we're going to have the directors on at some point. But in terms of the way it's shot, um, the way it's acted, all the choices they make with this kind of a film, it's really good. And it's a great title as well, Freaks, uh, which is not to be confused with the classic film Freaks back uh, from Todd Browning back in 1932. I'm not sure if you've seen that film, Joe. I have not seen that movie, but I am familiar with it because it was uh, it's controversial today because they actually used uh, people who were in the circus, correct? Oh, well done, Joe. Here, here is actually the write-up for Todd Browning's Freaks. When trapeze artist Cleopatra learns that circus, a small person, Hans, is an inheritance, she marries the lovesick, diminutive performer, all while planning to steal his fortune, run off with her lover, strongman Hercules. When Hans's friends and fellow performers discover what is going on, they band together, carry a brutal revenge that leaves Hercules and Cleopatra knowing what it truly means to be a freak. You're right. You've got people who are, like, abnormal in the movie. So at the time, it was heavily controversial. That's good work out of you, Joe, that you knew that. Thank you, thank you. It's my years of film study in college. <laughs> you know you're a movie nerd when you've seen the movie Freaks from Todd Browning back in 1932. All right, once again, we'll talk more about the movie Freaks when we have on the actual directors. Um, and, of course, next week we're going to talk about Blinded by the Light. Cannot wait to see that film from Gurinder Chudda. As far as some uh, entertainment news to pass along before we get to our guest host, Wesley Snipes, Leslie Jones, more cast in the Coming to America sequel. That's right, the sequel to the 1988 comedy. Also, Rick Ross is in the cast, Kiki Lane. Uh, she was from If Beale Street Could Talk. Shout out to that excellent film. Also, original cast members James Earl Jones, Paul Bates are returning, joining Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall, who reprised their roles. Snipes will play a new character named General Izzy, who rules a neighboring country to Zamunda. Lane will play Akeem's daughter. Not sure about Leslie Ro uh, Jones' role. James Earl Jones reprising his role as Akeem's father. So, Coming to America 2, Honest Coming to America, uh, the original, is one of the funniest movies ever. I'm always a little bit fearful of sequels, Joe. It's set to hit theaters December 18th, 2020. But honestly, if it's Eddie Murphy and it's coming to America, count me in, right? Oh, yeah, I'm there 100%. The, fir the first movie is a classic, and it still holds up so well today. And it's a movie that has, like, transcended gen generations. Like, I have my little brother, who's 23. This is one of his favorite movies. So I'm really excited to see if it's good. I really, really want it to be good. Yeah, I agree with you. Definitely the desire is there. Also, Quentin Tarantino, he says his 10th and final film is going to be Epilogue. 
That's right, epilogue. If you think about the idea of all the movies telling one story, each film is like a trained boxcar connected to each other, this one would sort of be the big show-stopping climax of it all, and I can imagine the 10th one would be a little more epilogue He confirmed he plans to make only 10 movies, still has one more to make, but provided no further details what that film might be like. This is interesting because he did say previously he might be directing the Star Trek film, but it looks like if he does that, this will be a separate film. So maybe he's doing 11 movies. I'm not totally sure, but he was taking a tour of the Kremlin, uh, even though he says he doesn't agree with the Russian government on some things. He did go to the Kremlin and checked it out there to see his fans. Also, Nicolas Cage, previous guest on Cinefile, look up that episode if you haven't listened to that. He said he once went searching for the Holy Grail, told the New York Times, that was the time I went on, you call it a Grail quest. I started following mythology. I was finding properties that aligned with that. It was almost like national treasure. Of course, that didn't sustain. He said, you read a book in it, there's a reference to another book, then you buy that book, then you attach the references. For me, it was all about where was the Grail? Was it here? Was it there? Is it Glastonbury? Does it exist? After Quest, it took him beyond books. He says he found his answer. What is the grail but Earth itself? I mean, Nicholas Cage, i got to be honest with you, Joe. I met him at Sundance a couple years ago. He's a fascinating guy. He uh, honestly has a real mystique and aura about him. I know people can think he's strange, and maybe he's a little bit kooky, but I do think he's awfully intelligent. And even though he's made his fair share of stinkers, when you look at his best films, whether it's Leaving Las Vegas or you know Face Off or... Um, adaptation, great actor. But you read that article in the New York Times, you definitely think uh, this would be an interesting guy to hang with for 24 hours, right? Oh, 100%. I also feel like if anyone could find the Holy Grail, it would be Nick Cage. I mean, he found a map on the back of the U.S. Constitution once, so I feel like he could, if anyone could pull it off, it'd be him. <laughs> well said. And lastly... Uh, a new initiative, Major League Baseball planning to play a special game at the location of the 1989 Kevin Costner feature film Field of Dreams in Iowa. That's right, we've been all over this on Change Up on Zone. But the White Sox and the Yankees are going to play a regular season game August 13, 2020 in Dyersville, Iowa at the site of the beloved baseball flick. 8,000 seat ballpark that neighbors the iconic movie location. God, imagine how expensive those tickets are going to be. A pathway through a cornfield will take fans to the ballpark which will overlook the famed site. The right field wall will include windows to show the cornfields beyond the ballpark. Aspects of the ballpark's design will pay homage to Chicago's Comiskey Park, home of the White Sox from 1910 to 1990, including the shape of the outfield bullpens beyond the center field fence. We broadcast by Fox beginning at 7 Eastern. First ever MLB game ever held at the location, as well as in the state of Iowa. Is this heaven? No, it's Iowa. What a great initiative here. And I'd say that not just as a baseball fan, Joe, I'm sure you'd be happy if your twins were playing in it. This is just a great idea to have Field of Dreams being featured now now all these years later 100 percent agree i cannot wait to see just how it looks on camera when they shoot it and just how pretty it is and also this is great for the state of iowa they need more things than just the primaries coming to them every four years <laughs> exactly the primaries and potatoes and the hot guys all right that's your entertainment news now it's time for a special guest who's with Havji. follow him on twitter at h-u-s-e-m here he is Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com There's no accounting for taste or friends. Lines are drawn when an extravagant purchase leads three lifelong friends to question the bonds they've taken for granted. A sharp comedy about modern friendships. That is the description of art, which is currently appearing in Toronto. That's right, in my hometown. I just went and saw one of my dearest, one of my best friends, one of the most talented guys I know, Husband Havji, who is in art. It's uh, presented by Soul Pepper, which is a very famous theater company in Toronto. So make sure you go see it in the distillery. It's a Tony Award winner for Best Play, Lawrence Olivier Award, Best Comedy. It's 90 Minutes, and who steals the show? Uh, in case you didn't know more about him before we dive into the play, Hussein is a Canadian actor and television personality. He is best known for his role as Dr. Shahir Hamza on the medical drama Saving Hope and as a former face of Star Canada's entertainment channel. Madhavji's roles as an actor include playing Ruptal One on HBO Canada's Call Me Fitz and Lieutenant Colonel Max Prakash in Combat Hospital. Hussein goes by the name Hoos. And Utopia Falls coming in 2020 in a genre-bending take and a coming-of-age story. A group of teens in a distant future colony uncover an ancient forbidden archive of historical, cultural, and musical relics. This discovery forces them to question everything they've been taught and use the power of music to ignite change in their reality to expose the truth. That's coming from our boy R.T., who is the creator of that, another one of our close college friends, and Hoos is in that. I just find this hysterical, Hoos, that I'm introducing you as if I didn't just hang out with you Saturday night and go see the play and you were sitting in our car for an hour after the show but that was like your formal introduction and welcome to cinephile my man yo man thank you very it's an yeah, let me tell you something. it's an honor to be on cinephile seriously <laughs> you the, the, your program the podcast is so good it's so entertaining and you've got such great guests and now i'm one of your guests i think i've made it like this is definitely there's a milestone moment for me. This moment right here is a milestone moment. So the, next, the next time you talk to your agent and manager, go, what's the press tour been like? Well, I was on CP24. You know, I've done uh, certain interviews. I've also been on Cinephile. Like, excuse me? I'm like, well, they've had certain guests. It's Robert De Niro, Mahershala Ali, yeah. Billy Bob Thornton, Margot Robbie, and me. I'm on that list. I mean, I'm on that list. I'm, this is, I'm, like, I'm on Cinephile. That's like the biggest thing for me right now. It's huge. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the play. Art, it was fantastic, man. I went and saw one of the Thank previous you. screenings, which was this past Saturday. And for those who, who don't know much about plays, Hoos uh, had told me, listen, come by, because obviously I was in Toronto for a limited amount of time. There are for our boy Cabby's wedding. Uh, Cab had a phenomenal wedding on Friday's. Easily one of the most popular people you and I both know, yet it was a wonderfully yeah. intimate, very tasteful wedding. And you were unbelievable. You made it for the wedding ceremony of Cab and Dana, then went back to do the show, then came back for afterwards. And for those that don't know what the previous screenings are all about, what exactly is the purpose of it before the show officially opens this week? So the, uh, the, show, so the show opens on Thursday, like tomorrow. 
Uh, but yeah, preview screening is like, is it, it's still technically a rehearsal, you know? So we're, we're testing out what we have been working on for the past month in front of a paying audience and, and then taking that information that we get from the audience, sharpening things up for the next audience the next day. So we've got um, five preview performances. So, so the one you saw, so the one, so no, actually the one on Cab's wedding, that was our first one. So we had a rehearsal the entire day. The rehearsal finished like an hour early. I'm like, I think I can make this wedding. I threw my suit on, make it to the wedding, and then I had to leave to do the performance and then came back to the reception. <laughs> I mean, it was already incredible you were able to do that, but tell the story about the one line one of your actors said, who is, of course, a great actor, a Canadian theater royalty, but everybody flunks oh, yeah. around <laughs> once in a while. What was the line that he said that made you guys laugh? It was, yeah. So, first of all, like, it's, it's our first time performing in front of, a, in front of an audience. So, right, we're, we're kind of giddy and, like, excited, and the audience is, like, love, they're just loving it. Like, they're, they're just they're eating everything up. So, we're, like, feeling really good about this. And the line, it's an, he's, he's, uh, he's speaking to another actor, this guy, Diego. Um, he's playing a, a character named Serge. So, he's saying to him that, in reference to my character, that I'm a little ass-kisser. So, this, he, the line is, he's a little ass-kisser. And instead, he forgot the word ass kisser, and instead the word came out. He's like, he's a, he's a, little, he's a little asshole. And he just said that, and that, that immediately, like, I, it, threw me, it threw me off guard. I, I looked at him, like, I'm, I'm sure, like, I, I, could, I couldn't face the audience. I had to turn away from the audience. He had to turn away. The audience erupted. We probably paused for, like, three minutes. Like, you just had to wait until everybody... Everybody calmed down. Everybody just settled in and we can get back into the play. It was, actually, it was actually a really, it was a great moment. It was like a great theatrical moment. Um, definitely for the three of us because we were like, we had not experienced something like that before. It was a lot of fun. I've always wanted to ask you this because I just, I, you know, people often think of you and me, obviously, with so many shared personalities and our backgrounds and uh, exuberant personalities, some might say obnoxious, but, but both of us broadcasters, and then you went from broadcasting into acting. And people have said to me, you know, wouldn't you love to be an actor? And I said, for many reasons, I don't think I could do it. And I, I thought of one of the many reasons as I was watching you, and you were so great, man. Seriously, I was so proud of you. Thank, I said, thank you. Thank I, you. I just don't know. And, and you know this, who's with broadcasting. Like, you know, you learn your lines a little bit. Maybe you've got prompter it's fairly straightforward like you know for myself on a nightly show baseball show I read my statistics I have enough knowledge of, of the sport of which I'm covering etc for a play you know you've got to hit your exact lines and there's just so many lines this may be a, a, probably the stupidest question I've ever asked you but like how do you memorize your lines how do you how did you go from a guy who would learn a couple things and like you know run prompter and whatever to go and you've done live TV so I get that of course you can ad lib for, for hours at a time but okay, when I was watching you there's this one monologue that you did where your character can in and like it must have been like it's five minutes of you just talking and I'm like how do you even do that right so so memorizing lines is very different like it's not you're not memorizing something by rote you know what I mean like it's like um you know when you memorize something in another language you might not know the meaning you're like I just need to get get the sounds and just sort of get sort of piece those things together it's lines when it comes to I think when it comes to text it's very different because it's about the intention and what you're saying and making real sense of what it is. And the more you, we had a month to rehearse. So the more you're understanding, really get a clear depth of un, and clear understanding of what you're saying and the movement and who you're speaking to, the lines just end up sticking. Like they end up just, it's so, it's, it's, it, it is interesting because like the first couple of weeks of rehearsal, I had, the, I was so scared to let go of my book. I didn't want to put it down, but then, 
it just happened. Like you just sort of like, you're like, oh my God, I don't even need this thing anymore. It's just because the, the more you're doing it, the more you're communicating what you're feeling to the other actor or whatever you want to convey in the play, the lines end up, end, end up just sticking. And in fact, it's, it's harder, it's harder to, mem- it's actually, that's easier to memorize. It's, it's harder to memorize something where you don't really understand what you're saying. Like, like doing something like in, a, in, a, like in, a, in another language. I could do, um, I did a video game a while ago and I, they, they just assumed that I spoke Farsi. I don't know why, but anyway, so they gave me a bunch of Farsi and I'm like, what? And I had to just learn this, learn how to say these words, kind of understanding what I was saying, but it was, you didn't have that much time. And that was, you know, maybe like four or five lines. And that was so much harder than, than this, believe it or not. That's hilarious. I, no, no, I'm Indian, not Persian. What? No, no, come on. You, you can speak yeah, yeah, Farsi. Like, I'm sure you can. <laughs> let me talk. Yeah, don't speak to them. What do you want? What do you yeah, 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 I would just assume that you I just, I speak this language. I'm like, no, I don't. But anyway. <laughs> uh, Pacino once said you know, that, you know, the reason why he preferred acting on the stage was because he said it's a high wire. And he said that metaphor is the only one that is apt for an actor, that when you're, when you're on the wire, anything can happen. Being a guy who's had several hit TV shows, um, who is going to further develop his craft and make big motion pictures, and I'm sure you're going to be a roaring success in all of that. What's the theater been like for you, Hoosh, being able to do what Pacino said, live life on the wire? Is it, is it exciting? Is it nerve-wracking? Is it terrifying? Tell me the kaleidoscope of emotions. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's very exciting. It's, it's, um, it's uh, how do I explain this one? I, you know what it's like for me? I don't know if it's like a high, I mean, not that I want to contest Pacino, but for me it's more like skydiving. Because it's exhilarating. It is exhilarating. It's like, um, like once you step onto the stage or once you jump off a plane, like you're not going back. Like that's it. The play started. You can't say, can I take another, can, I, can we try that again? Like it's happening. It's live and it's happening. But it, it is so much fun, bro. It is like, it's, it's exhilarating. And then when you finally finish, it's like you just landed and you're, there's like a sense of calm and for me, at least, because I mean, theater is still like relatively new to me. It, it, there's a there's a clear sense of euphoria after after each performance. You're just like, wow, like that happened. And then when you have to do it again, you're like, oh crap, I got to jump out of this plane again. So for me, it's like that. It's um, there's like a real sense of excitement. Um, there's a real sense of fear. It's like it's all it's all there and it's buzzing in your body as soon as you step out on stage. And then once you're on stage, that's it, man. You can't think about it. You just got to stay. Stay focused on the other character, what you are doing, and then just let it happen. Before we transition to your TV work, which I want to get into, who's tell people what's the easiest way to get tickets to go see the show, sell the show here, three-man play. I mean, hell, male nudity. We'll, 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 get it. we'll get people to come here no matter what. What is the easiest way to go see Art, which is playing in the Distillery District in Toronto? Got it. So Art is being put on by Soul Pepper. Soul Pepper Theater Company is arguably, arguably one of the country's best uh, theater companies um, uh, to the actors that, that I'm working with are like veterans or like, like one of them is a founding member. Art itself uh, uh, is a Tony Award winning um, comedy slash drama, I guess. Uh, it was done on Broadway and we brought it here and uh, it's about three guys. One person buys uh, an abstract piece of painting for an exorbitant amount of money. His best friend takes a personal insult to it. And the other guy just wants everyone to get along. And it's, it's an examination about not just fine art and what we, find val- what we find, put value in, but also about friendships and how, how a seemingly irrational argument can, re- can uncover some deep 
deep truths um, about each other and about, about, and about the bond that these two people have with each other. And I think it's a real reflection on how, how we see our own friendships and the own relationships we have in our lives. That's well said, man. Yasmina Reza is the playwright uh, of Persian That's descent, right. lives in Paris, but did God of Carnage, which uh, Gandolfini did on Broadway, award-winning as well. So certainly a big pedigree and uh, a big step for you. So I hope everybody goes and sees art. Uh, as far as other work you've done, Hush, of course, the, the big breakthrough, Call Me Fitz, you were hysterical playing Reptile. Um, tell us, you know, again, I'm trying to think of the American audience here. Maybe you haven't seen it, but they know Jason Priestley and what a big star he was, uh, who is a fellow Canadian. But Beverly Hills done yeah. a 2 0, which is now, which is now coming back, I believe, as uh, they're having some reunion show or something. But tell us about Priestley. I would always ask you about him and you would tell me what a great guy he was. What are some anecdotes you can tell me about him for the audience? Priestley is, um, first of all, he's like, that guy has, has had a storied life. Like, he was a rock star as a, you know, in his like late teens, early 20s, I guess early 20s, when he did 90210 back in the, back in the 90s. Um, so he's sort of seen it and done it all, you know? Um, and so I was expecting, I was like, oh man, this is going to be, like, I, I, was, I just wasn't sure what to expect. But he was like the hardest working guy on set, the hardest working guy. He just, um, like nothing phased him. He was in pretty much every scene um, for all four seasons. And he just, he was just someone that, um, and he also, and he, he's also directed me. He's directed, a, he's directed episodes on Fitz and actually on Saving Hope as well. And he's just one of those guys that just really cares and wants to pull out the best performance. And as an actor, he's just, he wants to just make sure that you look good, which it's it, it just, it's like, um, it's very, uh, it's very selfless. He's like a very selfless performer. And one of the, one of the things, one of the things that, um, that I love about him is that just that he's always open for conversation. So anytime you want to ask him anything, go out for dinner or anything, he's just there. He just, he's very accessible and, um, he's just, uh, yeah, a, a great, a great artist. My favorite anecdote is like, um, we were in Nova Scotia and we're shooting this, uh, we're shooting Call Me Fit and it was like a huge rainstorm. And people were like, compl- like uh, people were like, some of the other actors, I think, were complaining that, like, oh, my hair is going to get all messy and whatever. And he had to go out in this rainstorm with, like, underwear and, like, a silk robe. And he did it. Like, he, he there was, like, zero complaints, nothing. He went out, did the shot. They brought a heater for him. He, they, you know, warmed up. He went back and did it. And then because he did, he did that, he sort of just set the standard for everybody else. So no, there was, like, no complaining, no bickering, no nothing because he stepped up to the plate and was like, look, we've got to get the shot. We're getting the shot. Like, what's everyone complaining about? We're putting a TV show together, you know? And he's just, um, yeah. He's, just, and he's also very, I feel, I get a sense that he's also grateful for the life that he has. He has a great family and like the work that he's, like, the, and the work that he has done and is doing. So he's like, a, definitely like, a, like someone that I look up to for sure. Um, thinking of that story, I was telling you about that book I just read, Best Movie Year Ever uh, by Brian Raftery, which we're going to have him on Cinephile in the coming weeks. But it makes me think about David Fincher and the fact he'll do like 50 takes or David O. Russell, we did Three Kings, would do 50 takes. Was there ever a time during uh, Combat Hospital or Call Me Fitz or Saving Hope that you remember particularly doing a scene over and over and over, either through your own desire to get it right or the director saying we've got to get one more take that just drove you to exhaustion? Um, there was one, no, you know what, there was one point where, uh, for me, like, not to the point of exhaustion, but there was one point that I just remember where there was a, there was, uh, a lot of tension on set because we needed to get, um, we needed to get the shot before the sun came down and that was it. And you know, like that, it was just, it had to happen. And, they, 
and they were having trouble with the sound because it was in the middle of the street, and they had to try and... So things kept getting delayed. It was on Comedy Fest for the first season. And I remember my friend, Sean, who played my cousin. Sean said he played my cousin. Rook too. Played my cousin on the show. He's like, yo, man, are you okay? Like, are you stressed? How are you feeling? And I'm like, dude, this is the greatest job in the world. <laughs> like, this is fine. I'm fine. Like, this is, it, it didn't, uh, I remember feeling the stress and like just having to get it and then just thinking and looking around. I'm like, holy crap, I can't believe I'm doing this. And as long as I feel like, as long as I can have that in my mind, I don't think, um, I hope nothing will really get me or like, you know, get me to that point of exhaustion where I'm, where I'm not, where it's, or, or get me to the point of irritation, you know? Yeah. Uh, last one here for you, because you know, I read that IMDb uh, profile, and of course you've done those great shows, but I will always know you made your debut, not in one of our films at Ryerson, but of course, Blues Brothers 2000, where you worked with John Landis. Blues Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell the story for our audience. Why I, would you I, I, re- <laughs> I remember along with Cab and Randall being enraptured as 20-year-olds finding out you were an extra in Blues Brothers 2000. Blues, I kept telling them, right. give me, I, I go, give me John Landis stories. What do you got? Okay, one, the only John Landis story I have, first of all, it's John Landis who directed Coming to America and Trading Places. I'm like, this is like, this guy's a legend. So as soon as I saw him, I'm like, holy crap. And now I'm, there's like, I don't know, 300 extras, and we're like dancing in a scene where like Dan Aykroyd's performing. And Paul Schaefer, by the way, he was there. Um, nice. So we're in this, I'm, so, and he, he uh, John has had to just kind of keep the crowd vibing. And normally like the assistant director or someone else might kind of like speak to the, speak to the extras or the background performers. But he decided to come out and just tell stories about Eddie Murphy on Coming to America. And just, just, he just gave just funny anecdotes about, about Eddie. He just, he just basically just gave Eddie Murphy stories um, on the set of Blues Brothers 2000 just to entertain the background performers. And that was it. Other than that, he was more like, guys, dance more, move around more. That was it. Nothing, nothing, nothing. There was no actual personal direction from John Landis for me at all. It wasn't like, <laughs> that hey, been amazing. Brown man, be- do me a favor. You're amazing. I'm going to make you a star. I didn't get that at all. It wasn't, it wasn't that. <laughs> it would have been amazing if he was giving specific direction to your dancing. Like, hey, you know what? Give me a bit <laughs> more hyperkinetic. <laughs> you know what? This, Eddie Murphy and coming to America. Oh, my God. Who is this little Indian guy? He's like, the next Eddie Murphy's right there. Get this. <laughs> You're the next. You're going to be coming to America, three. That's the two coming out. But anyways, yeah, that would have been the best. But no, that didn't happen. Uh, Still a great experience, and thanks for bringing that anecdote up. Oh, uh, dude, it was the best. The, the only thing better was when in, in your former role as Star Daily, when you were flirting with Elizabeth Hurley, when she was like, "Are you Indian? Are you Indian?" <laughs> she was dating a brown guy at the time. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah. Of course, I had to. I, I think I asked her that question. I was like, All right, Elizabeth, I think, I think you have this thing for Indian men. She's like. Are you Indian? I'm like, 100%, baby. I think your Indian guy's like, I don't know, maybe half. I don't know what he is. But this is thoroughbred right here. <laughs> <laughs> so great. Also, I remember you flirted with Beyonce as well. She was great, too. I'm like, man, the life you've lived, man, it's awesome. It's the best. Well, you too, bro. I mean, think about it. It's been, it's been pretty blessed, I feel, you know? No question, man. Check out art uh, available. It's in Toronto, of course. Tickets, as uh, Hussein mentioned, go 
Well, it's on sale now, obviously, but the show begins Thursday, which is tomorrow, and then goes till September 1st. So limited run. Yeah. I'm sure it's going to be sold out. Honestly, I'm so proud of you, brother. You know that uh, there's no bigger supporter of you than me, and uh, we've been friends forever, and you're one of my closest friends, and that means that you know where all the bodies are buried, which means we can never let each other down and uh, <laughs> see you up on that stage, man. It was awesome. Seriously. You're so, um, we're so proud of you. My wife, Eamon, loved the show. You know, listen, she's not big into live theater, okay? As soon as she heard three-man play, it's like, oh, my God. It makes you think about like you know like i don't know like how how exciting can this be three people and a bunch of chairs but it's it's more than captivating so trust me you won me over when i already walked in the theater you won her over by the virtue of your acting i'm sure you're going to win over the entire audience in canada by the time this run is over so congrats man oh, you're the best Bert, thank you very much i appreciate it thank you Mount Rushmore. All right, now it's time for the Mount Rushmore Supernatural Movies. I mentioned this because Freaks, which you'll be seeing in theaters soon, we'll be talking to directors in a couple weeks here in Cinephile, fits in that category. So we did horror movies before, Joe. Now we're going with Supernatural movies. So I'm going to go throw a Nightmare on Elm Street just because Freddy Krueger, again, it can go in both categories, but it's just so freaky and I still can't... Uh, Get that horrible visage out of my head. Sixth Sense, I think, is brilliant. Again, I'm being uh, toyed with here by Raftery after I read his book, uh, The Best Movie Year Ever, 1999, and just reading the stories of The Sixth Sense, M. Night Shyamalan. It's amazing how they were able to keep that secret. You know what I mean? In today's age, everybody would be spoiling that movie. He said, for some reason, though, people went and saw The Sixth Sense and then didn't tell people what the ending was and then encouraged repeat viewings. They wanted to watch it with other people to watch the reactions. So... Uh, talk about an ingenious idea done to a really great effect. And, of course, it made M. Night Shyamalan's career and gave Bruce Willis a real big boost. I also love Jacob's Ladder. God, my boy Jay Nats, John Nadlin, who I also saw. We went and saw Hoos' play on Saturday. Uh, John loves Jacob's Ladder. It's one of his favorite movies, and I love it too. God, Tim Robbins is so good in that movie. It's creepy and effective. And then we got Ghostbusters. Uh, you know what? Yeah, what the hell? Let's go with Ghostbusters. That'll also be in the supernatural realm. Obviously, a comedy and a really funny one. You got Egon and the whole crew. I'm going to go with Ghostbusters. So, Ghostbusters, uh, Jacob's Ladder, Sixth Sense, Nightmare on Elm Street, Mount Rushmore, supernatural movies. How about you, Joe? All right. For me, I'm going to agree with you on Ghostbusters. We got to throw that in there. Then I'm going to throw in Pet Cemetery. One of my favorite uh, movies just from the 1980s in general. Very weird movie. Then The Shining, for obvious reasons, Jack Nicholson at his best. But the one I'm really excited to dive into, and this is my sleeper, Final Destination has to be one of the scariest supernatural movies I've ever seen. Most people think it's just, you know, a, a teen horror movie from the early 2000s. No, it is Hitchcockian. It, it, there's so many shadows and angles and each scene builds and decline cannot recommend final destination enough all right book it there's your mount rushmore supernatural movies the bada binge all right, now it's time for the bottom bins, the moment you've all been waiting for. If you're a big Sopranos fan, you know exactly how big Pine Barrens is when it comes to major films. Honestly, again, reading, excuse me, major episodes, I should say, from Matt Zoller, cites his book and Alan Sepinwall, Pine Barrens, a.k.a. the one with the Russian. 
is the episode that Sopranos fans use to recruit new viewers. It works as a self-contained short feature about a mob boss losing control of his business and his personal life, even as it advances key season-spanning subplots without resolving them and teases upcoming twists without promising specifics. It delivers all the distinguishing characteristics longtime viewers expect, suspense, violence, undertones of melancholy and mystery, while mostly airing on the side of comedy, be it slapstick goofy or emotionally raw. Gloria hitting Tony in the back of the neck with his dinner. It's probably the best hour that great TV writer Terrence Winter has written for any series. It's one of the very best things that Steve Buscemi, a still largely unsung hero of indie film directors, has put his name on. It features two of Tony Sirico and Michael Imperioli's best comic performances, decadently satisfying entertainment that pulls the audience along from start to finish while leaving them with unexpected questions like, what happened to the Russian? Over a terrible cell connection, Tony tells Polly that Valerie killed 16 Chechen rebels single-handedly and was in the interior ministry, which Polly translates to Christopher as, you're not going to believe this, he killed 16 Czechoslovakians, guy was an interior decorator. Chris, confused, says, his house looked like shit. Also, talking about just the look of the film, uh, episode, excuse me, Valerie has supernatural powers and the sheer size of the gore cloud erupting from his skull when Polly gets off his lucky shot to the way his blood trail and footprints simply disappear to the running creature Chris shoots that turns out to be a deer but might as well be a reincarnated Valerie. Director Buscemi, long a favorite filmmaker of Chase's because of his debut feature 1996's Trees Lounge, Makes a lot of choices here that imply the Russian is something more than a mere mortal, including an overhead shot looking down on Polly and Chris from treetops that initially seems from the point of view of Valerie would have to climb like a squirrel to get that high. Every choice has plausible deniability while also being vaguely chilling, hitting that soprano sweet spot between the known and the unknowable. Look up fail in the documentary. You should see Chris and Polly in the snow. Chris bloody-headed and wrapped in the car floor mat. Polly grimacing from the snow, freezing his one shoeless foot. His typically immaculate salt and pepper hair poofed out like the wild mane of a German expressionistic dream figure. It's an unbelievable episode. In fact, it's not even the main plot of the story here, Joe, because there's also the subplot of Gloria and Tony. She's the first to defy Tony, demanding and receiving better treatment, getting dissed again, calling him an inconsiderate prick, and telling him if I wanted to be treated like shit, I'd get effing married. Then finally exploding in rage after keeping him waiting three hours, throwing a slab of lukewarm London broil against the back of his neck as he's leaving to pick up Bobby. It's in a crazy episode because so many talk about Pine Barrens and about the Russian, but this stuff with Gloria and that scene where Tony you know, finally can't take it anymore and you see his rage towards her and the fact his full level of anger. I mean, it's, it's an incredible episode. I know you just watched it again, Joe. What are your thoughts on Pine Barrens? Oh, it's, it's an amazing, amazing episode. It, it really shows the dichotomy between Tony the mob boss and Tony the family man and Tony... You know, his other relationships, especially the one with Gloria, his relationship in therapy, but it hits all these notes and it's still like darkly funny at times throughout the entire episode. Like when uh, Dr. Melfi says, hey, I realized you and your wife haven't been fighting as much. Tony goes, yeah, it's the therapy. We've been learning to communicate when really he's just keeping everything secret. Yeah, it's amazing. Also, there's a funny scene, too. Playing Scrabble with Meadow, Jackie assumes that oblique is a Spanish word pronounced oblique, while his own words include poo, ass, and the. So that's exactly the kind of dummy he is. 
Uh, everybody's got an opinion on Pine Barrens, and to this day, people keep saying, what happened to the Russian? We're never going to know, right? Well, uh, Season 3, Episode 12 is Amur Fu, and this is subplot climax filing Gloria's cabin. They start battling, and literally, Tony nearly strangles her to death for coming to his senses after her repeated gasps of, kill me. It's crazy to see this is finally the level of uh, rage and self-destructiveness these two people feel that eventually, finally, uh, Tony knows he cannot be with Gloria any longer. The fact that she's taking chances now, the fact that she took Carmela for a spin in the Mercedes. I mean, now it's one thing to have your gumar, but it's coming into your personal life. Tony knows he's got to just say goodbye to her. I mean, that whole storyline of, of Tony finally starting to choke Gloria Makes you think of those uh, great movies from the past of, you know, fill in the blank from hell. It's like Basic Instinct. In fact, as the guys write in their book, Soprano Sessions, Basic Instinct is sampled in the scene where Jackie and Dino watch Sharon Stone's accused murderer, Catherine Trammell, rattle a room full of male detectives by uncrossing her legs to reveal that she's not wearing underwear. Misogynist as the image might be, it speaks to something, well, basic in the story of men and women, an idea that's embedded in everything from film noir to blues songs, women as hypnotizing sexual force causing men to act against their better judgment. My face is the last one you'll see, not Tony's, threatens Patsy Parisi, the most milquetoast-looking guy in the crew. We understand each other. It won't be cinematic. That's one of the most chilling lines in that episode where Gloria knows, hey, listen, you do one more thing, and all of a sudden, you're going to be dead. Never talk to Tony again. One of the most indelible characters you'll ever see in The Sopranos. That's it for Gloria. And then we get to the final episode of season three. It feels inevitable at this point. you got to say goodbye. Army of One, written by David Chase and Lawrence Connor, season three, episode 13. And that is to say goodbye to Jackie Jr. In the end, as Tony says, what are you going to do? I failed him. What are you going to do with the world today? Clearly, Jackie Jr.'s short, sad life is summed up in a single line. After he concedes defeat in a game of chess to the little girl, Ray Ray tells him, see, you should have played that out. That's the only way you're going to learn. Jackie Jr., unfortunately, cannot learn from the sins of his father. And so the finale also deals with a bit of uppercase family business. A cancer-free junior preparing for trial. Tony freezing out Christopher for questioning his leadership. Tony favoring Ralphie in a financial dispute with Paulie. And Johnny Sack trying to exploit the schism in Tony's crew by butter up the frustrated Polly with tales of Carmine talking about him. This rotten Sopranos family does also feature some wonderful singing there by Uncle Junior Dominic Cianese, who in fact in real life was an accomplished singer, and so they said, what the hell, he's a gifted tenor. He actually released an album called Hits the year before this episode aired. Two years later, he named his second album Ungrateful Heart after the Italian song that Junior sings in this one. As always, we are grateful for all of you. Wonderful cinephile listeners. Thanks to my special guest, Husband Hobji. Thank you to all of you listeners. Once again, subscribe to the podcast. Tell all your friends about it. Go on Apple and uh, rate and review. Next week, we're talking about Blinded by the Light, new film by Gurinder Chadda. Cannot wait for that. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. 
magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.